The following sermon was preached at Liberty Baptist Church. We exist to showcase the glory of God by being and making disciples of Jesus. To learn more about us, please visit our website at lbcliberty.org. I am indeed in prison now in body, but my mind is free to study Christ, and how unto me he is kind. For though men keep my outward man within their locks and bars, yet by the faith of Christ I can mount higher than the stars. Their fetters cannot spirits tame, nor tie up God from me. My faith and hope they cannot lame, above them I shall be. These were the words of the Puritan preacher John Bunyan while serving a 12-year prison sentence for preaching the gospel. And although Bunyan held on to his hope in Christ, his sentence in prison did not come without tremendous suffering. He said that during his time in prison when he was away from his wife and children, it was like his flesh was being ripped from his bones. He said when he thought of one of his daughters in particular who was born blind and the troubles that she would probably face, he said it broke his heart to pieces. For Bunyan and his family, all of his suffering could end if he would just have stopped preaching the gospel. He just had to stop being faithful to Christ and his suffering could be over But by God's grace, he never did. In fact, when he was asked by someone what he would do when he got out of prison, this is what he said. He said, if I was out of prison today, I would preach the gospel again tomorrow by the help of God. Instead of giving up, he patiently endured being mistreated. Instead of spending his days focusing on revenge, he spent his days focusing on Christ. And in a similar way, this type of patience in trials that we face is what James is calling us to in our passage this morning. Turn with me in your Bibles to James chapter 5. We're going to be looking at verses 7 through 11. James chapter 5, verses 7 through 11. I'll give you just a moment to turn there. He says, Therefore, brothers and sisters, be patient until the Lord's coming. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth and is patient with it until it receives the early and late rains? You also must be patient. Strengthen your hearts because the Lord's coming is near. Brothers and sisters, do not complain about one another so that you will not be judged. Look The judge stands at the door. Brothers and sisters, take the prophets who spoke in the Lord's name as an example of suffering and patience. See, we count as blessed those who have endured. You have heard of Job's endurance and have seen the outcome that the Lord brought about. The Lord is compassionate and merciful. This is the word of the Lord. This letter was written by James, who was the brother of Jesus and the leader of the Jerusalem church. The intended readers were most likely Jewish Christians living outside of Palestine. And James has spent most of his letter up until our passage telling us what it looks like to live the Christian life. 
He's been writing about their suffering and the potential worldliness and divisions that presented a real danger amongst them. These believers were poor and they were suffering mistreatment at the hands of the ungodly rich that was just mentioned before our passage in chapter 5 verses 1 through 6. The trials that these Christians were facing would have made it a very real danger to give in, give up, or get even. So the question of the passage and the question that we must ask is, how should we respond? What should be the heart attitude of the Christian living in the midst of a fallen world full of trials, opposition, and mistreatment? James says the heart attitude of the Christian should be one of patience. Unlike the ungodly rich who take advantage of the poor, who live to satisfy their desires, who have stored up treasures on earth, the godly are to live in light of the Lord's return. They're not to have a heart posture full of hate and revenge, but one of long-suffering This has often been a difficult season, hasn't it, brothers and sisters? For different reasons for many of us. And my assumption is that for many of you, the weariness of your heart has made it tempting for you to either give up or to give in. So my aim in preaching this passage is to provide encouragement and strength from God's Word so that by His grace, you would patiently endure the trials that you're facing now and the trials that you will face in the future. If we would be faithful to Christ in difficulty, we will exercise godly patience. So what I want to do is give three characteristics that both mark and produce godly patience in the Christian Three characteristics that both mark and produce godly patience in the Christian. If you're taking notes, this is my outline. First characteristic, godly patience remembers the second coming of the Lord. Godly patience remembers the second coming of the Lord. That's verses 7 through 8. Second characteristic, godly patience recognizes the judgment of the Lord. Godly patience recognizes the judgment of the Lord. That's verse 9. And then third, godly patience reflects on the character of the Lord. Godly patience reflects on the character of the Lord. That's verses 10 through 11. So first characteristic, godly patience remembers the second coming of the Lord. Look down at verse 7. James says, Therefore, brothers and sisters, meaning everything he is about to say comes in light of what he just said about the ungodly rich in the previous section. He addresses them as brothers and sisters because he is making an intentional contrast between the godly and the ungodly. And now the purpose of his change of focus and who he is addressing is to call these Christians to something radically and supernaturally different. He tells them through all of their trials through their suffering, and through their mistreatment, to be patient. And you might be thinking, patience? Shouldn't they be plotting on how they can get even? Shouldn't they be filled with 
rage and ready to take matters into their own hands? How can he tell them to be patient? Well, James answers the question. He says, very simply, Jesus is coming back. And you might say, well, of course, every Christian knows that Jesus is coming back. Why does he find it so important to remind these believers of the return of Christ? Because the trials that we experience in this life, regardless of how they come, they tend to make us focus primarily inward. When we are relying only on our feelings and experience, our vision becomes very easily distorted. And we become very forgetful to what we know to be true. So the danger for these believers and for us is to base our responses primarily in light of our circumstances into what the natural eye can see. And if this is the primary, primarily what controls our responses, then repaying evil for evil makes sense because if I don't get them, no one will. If this is what primarily controls our responses, then it makes it easier to look at lost people who seemingly are prosperous in their sin and think, man, maybe that life is better over there. If this is what controls our responses, then it could become very easy to see how we could be driven to despair because God must not be for us. Brothers and sisters, which wrong response are you currently being tempted with? Have your circumstances made you forgetful of the Lord's coming? And not forgetful like you forgot the information, but forgetting in such a way that your life is no longer influenced by it. You see, hope diminishes and sin flourishes when we take our eyes off the return of Jesus. Our need to remind our soul to be patient in our circumstances is because the Lord is coming. And the word he uses for his coming also carries with it the encouragement of his presence. This is the certain hope of the Christian. Church, this is our certain hope. Paul says in Colossians 3, 4, When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with Him in glory. This is what our hearts long for the most as Christians, isn't it? To see Jesus face to face. The return of the one who promises to deliver His people. And you might say, well, he hasn't come back yet, so what does waiting on this day look like? Well, look down at the end of verse 7. He gives us this illustration. He says, see how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth and is patient with it until it receives the early and late rains? The farmer works and he plants, but he ultimately recognizes that he is totally dependent on something outside of himself. He has to wait for this extended period of time from the early to late rains with seeing any results. The only thing that the farmer can do is plant and trust with patience that the crops will come. Now, at first glance, when you're looking at this passage, you're looking at this call to be patient, 
you're looking at this example of the farmer, it could become very easily for us to, to think that what James is telling us is just to let go and let God. I mean, it seems at first glance that patience means passivity. Is that the kind of patience that we are being called to? I would say the answer is no. Godly patience, hear me, godly patience does not mean we close our eyes and we plug our ears to a fallen world full of evil. Now you can tell that I'm probably not um, a farmer by my haircut, and if you saw me roll up my sleeves, my tattoos... But I did grow up in a little town in western Missouri, so what that means is, is that I was a friend of a farmer once, and he told me that it's not easy. It's hard work. Godly patience isn't opposed to activity. As Christians, according to Scripture, we must pursue what is right. We must overcome evil with good. We must not act as if pain is not real. And we must faithfully preach the gospel regardless of the cost. But godly patience pursues faithful obedience with a heart actively trusting and remembering it is Jesus who is coming back to make all things right. It is Jesus who will bring the results and redeem His people. As Christians, we don't retreat. We patiently trust. The call to be patient and remember the Lord's coming, it has this aim of refocusing our hearts on who we should be trusting in the most. This is why James says in verse 8, like the farmer who patiently trusts, you also must be patient. He says, strengthen your hearts. When it feels like everything is falling apart, when it feels like your circumstances are hopeless, when it feels like there might not be any relief coming, he says, be strengthened by this current reality. Not only is Jesus coming back, but his coming is near. Because of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, our difficult circumstances have an expiration date. James is encouraging these believers in light of their difficult circumstances that things won't always be this way. Church, think with me for a moment, long with me for a moment, that there is coming a day in Christ when there will be no more being mistreated, no more opposition to the gospel, no more fighting sin. Do you long for that day? No more sickness in this season of life. Do you long for that day? No more death in this season of life. Do you long for that day? We won't ever have to turn on the news anticipating to hear another tragic and horrific story. Church, there is coming a day when the year of 2020 will be swallowed up in His grace for us. Don't let the reality of His second coming wash over you because how often you've heard it in the Christian life. Just 
a little while longer, brothers and sisters. Jesus is coming back. He's going to deliver us. He's going to make all things right again. When I put the kids to bed at night, I almost every night pray for specific things for the girls. And, and what I almost every time pray for them is that the Lord would know that, they're in, that He's in control, that we can trust Him because He always keeps His promises. And one particular night, I was having uh, this conversation with my daughter Rosie, who is my youngest, and it was before bed. And I was trying to encourage her because she didn't want to go to bed because she was scared, or at least she was telling me she was scared. And I said, Rosie, I said, we can trust the Lord. And before I could even finish, and just quick pause, this doesn't always happen. But before I could finish, she said, because he always keeps his promises. And I remember just wanting to fight back the tears. And I responded and I said, that's right. He always does. Sometimes in the complexity of life, we need to be reminded of the simplest truths the most, don't we? God keeps His promises. Jesus is coming back. And His coming is near. But the second coming doesn't only mean He's coming to deliver because we also know He's coming as judge. This leads to the second characteristic of godly patience. Godly patience recognizes the judgment of the Lord. Look down at verse 9. He says, Brothers and sisters, do not complain about one another. Now James knows that oftentimes when the pressure of our trials and circumstances, when it comes down on us, it becomes very easy for us to make enemies out of one another. Earlier in this letter, if you remember, he already addressed this type of sin that comes out of the mouth from the heart. He says in chapter 3, verse 9 and 10, With the tongue we bless our Lord and Father, and with it we curse people who are made in God's likeness. Blessing and cursing come out of the same mouth. And then he says this, My brothers and sisters, these things should not be this way. It is very, very possible in our sin as Christians to come to church and sing our heart out, it is well with my soul, and then on the way home, grumble against our brother or sister. The word he uses for a complaint, it's not just an outward expression of the mouth, it's an inward attitude of the heart. It can mean to groan within or to sigh. Church family, even if we have a real grievance against each other, this type of heart attitude, it won't be able to speak the truth in love because love is what? Love is patient. For us to understand the weight of what he is saying, we need to see that this command is not merely about us getting along. James says, do not complain about one another. Why? So that you will not be judged. Godly patience is marked and produced by taking the warnings of Scripture seriously and then clinging to Jesus more tightly. I can't tell you how many times I've come home after a difficult day, going through difficult circumstances, 
and I have grumbled to my family. And my complaints, they, they often don't just stay on the circumstances, the situation, or the others involved, but it quickly transitions to them. In my sin, I can function as if the people around me, even the people that I know love me the most, that they're somehow not for me. I can tell you that there hasn't been one single time, not one, that my sinful complaining has produced anything close to the righteousness of God. But I can tell you almost every single time, every single time has caused much damage in my life and in others around me. Consider that Paul says in Romans chapter 2, verse 9, that when the Lord comes back, He will repay each according to His work. And what this means is that sinfully grumbling and complaining about each other, it's not just some little sin. A, a grumbling heart is one that has forgotten both the mercies it needs and the mercies that God has given. To live consistently, consistently not seeing our brothers and sisters in a favorable light is to function as if the gospel isn't true. If this describes you, would you take this as a kind providence of the Lord and repent? If this describes you, can I just plead with you for a moment to not delay your repentance? The nearness of the Lord's coming means that we as Christians should be encouraged because He's coming back to deliver. He's coming back to make things right. But also the coming of the Lord should make us, even as Christians, sober-minded because He's coming back to execute judgment. Look at the end of verse 9. He says, look, the judge stands at the door. It's coming near. Very soon the door to the courtroom will be flung open and Jesus stands ready to judge. Brothers and sisters, would you... Just consider with me for a moment that our sin is deceitful. I mean, we know that, but really consider it that our sin is deceitful. Would you consider with me that our sin, most often it will convince us that our sinful complaining and grumbling is right when in fact it's devilish? Church, hear me. Satan loves, he loves to have more accusers on his team. The nearness of the Lord's coming judgment means that we will answer for every foolish and sinful word that comes out of our mouth. When we stand before God, there will be uh, no Twitter-like back-and-forth exchange. Every mouth stopped. The whole world will be held accountable to God. The only hope for a grumbling heart is to run to Jesus. Recognizing that the judgment we deserve didn't fall on us because it fell on Him. The quicker we are to recognize the coming judgment of the Lord and how we have escaped it in Christ, the quicker we will live with all humility, gentleness, 
patience, bearing with one another in love. The quicker we are to recognize the coming judgment of the Lord and how we have escaped it in Christ, the quicker we will defer to the Lord who says, Vengeance belongs to me. I will repay. But godly patience doesn't just recognize the coming judgment of the Lord. Godly patience reflects on the character of the Lord. Third characteristic, godly patience reflects on the character of the Lord. Look down at verse 10. He says, Take the prophets who spoke in the Lord's name as an example of suffering and patience. Moses led the people of Israel out of Egyptian bondage who not long after started grumbling about what they had to eat. David, for most of his life, was pursued by his enemies who wanted to kill him. Isaiah was called to go and preach to a people that wouldn't hear him. Jeremiah experienced opposition and saw virtually no fruit in his ministry. If you're struggling with loneliness and impatience in your trials, can I encourage you to turn to the Scriptures and you will find that you're not alone? When we survey the history of the brothers and sisters that have went before us, there is no shortage of examples that are imperfect of what it looks like to patiently endure. The prophets were called by God to faithfully communicate His words to a rebellious people. Is all the prophets had to do was keep silent, and it's very likely that the world would have been okay with them. But through difficulty, through mistreatment and suffering, they remained faithful. Looking to the example of the prophets, James says this in verse 11, See, we count as blessed those who have endured. And you might be thinking, blessed? Did he forget the words of his previous section of how these Christians are being treated? Has he read about how the prophets were treated? Church family, could it be that he could call them blessed in their suffering is because in the Bible, our circumstances are not a primary indicator of God's love for us? Could it be in the kingdom of God that the primary indicator to measure favor in God's eyes is the exact opposite of how the world sees it? The Apostle Paul, who maybe suffered more greatly than anyone else in all of the Bible outside of Jesus, says this in 2 Timothy 4.8. He says, There is reserved for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will give me on that day, and not only to me, but to all those who have loved his appearing. Prosperity is not is not the primary evidence of the Lord's favor in this life. But a heart trusting in Jesus that patiently endures is. One clear example of this is in the life of Job. James gives us another example to look at. Look down at the second half of verse 11. James says, You have heard of Job's endurance. And to the world's standards and Job's friends, he did not appear as a man who was blessed. He had everything taken from him. Unless we think patient endurance in suffering is stoic or it means it ignores pain, he at times wished he was never born. 
Unless we think patient endurance never has questions or doubts, Job had questions and he had doubts. But he never stopped taking his pain, his questions, and doubts to the Lord. And though it's true, the prophets and Job, they don't have a spotless track record, do they? When I look to the prophets, I don't see a perfect example. When I look to Job, I don't see a perfect example. Job complained. But what I do see is flawed individuals who never ultimately quit trusting in the Lord. And when I dig deeper, I see behind it all a faithful God who both exercises perfect patience and faithfulness towards His people. There are no commendable examples to follow if God is not first and primary faithful. In fact, the purpose of looking to commendable examples in the Bible is to look in such a way where we don't just stop at them, but we keep looking until we see the, a lifetime of the hand of God at work in a, in a trail of His mercies that follow. We keep looking. James is pointing us to examples of patient endurance in the life of the prophets and of Job so that we wouldn't merely look to them, but that we would look, keep looking to see the character of God at work. Because in the difficulty of our circumstances, we tend to become forgetful of God, don't we? What Job needed most, what these Christians needed the most that James is writing to, what we need the most is not answers to every why question, but to reflect and remember who God is. This is why James ultimately points to Job. He says, And you have seen the outcome that the Lord brought about. The Lord is compassionate and merciful. He's not saying if you just be like Job and he'll bless you with stuff in this life. He's not saying that. If that's the, the promise that you hold the Lord to, you're always going to be disappointed because He's never made that promise. Rather, He's saying, look at the Lord, brothers and sisters. Some of our biggest questions in our trials, suffering, and mistreatment, they are, do you care, Lord? Are you angry with me? But when we reflect on the Lord's character and examples of the past, we are given a better interpretation than what our feelings and circumstances are telling us. His posture towards His people in their suffering is not indifference. His posture towards His people in their suffering is not wrath. Psalm 103.8 says this about the character of the Lord. The Lord is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in faithful love. Christian, His impulse is not to destroy you the moment you step out of line. And if you're like me, then we have given Him every reason to smash us under the weight of His wrath. 
But instead, but instead, he has exercised patience towards us because he is compassionate and merciful. And if you need evidence of his compassion and mercy, look to Jesus. Look to Christ. Godly patience reflects on the gospel because in seeing what Christ has done for sinners like us, we see both the unblemished character and the remarkable patience of God on display. Charles Spurgeon said this, We shall not grow weary of waiting upon God if we remember how long and how graciously He once waited for us. In patience, He didn't give us what we deserve, did He? And if we're honest, as Christians, He still hasn't given us what we deserve. And it's because Jesus got what we deserve when He took our place at the cross. The gospel shows us that He cares for us. That He's full of mercy towards His people. In Christ, brothers and sisters, no more condemnation. And this means that in every circumstance, we can trust Him because we know that our favor before God is secure. And if our favor before God is secure, we can patiently endure by His grace. Brothers and sisters, just a little while longer, a little while longer, and our faith is going to become sight. But until then, I want to finish with a quote from John Piper, who helpfully said, Keep trusting in the one who keeps you trusting. Godly patience remembers the second coming of the Lord. Godly patience recognizes the judgment of the Lord. And godly patience reflects on the Lord's character. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you that you are compassionate and merciful and slow to anger. There is endless hope in the gospel and the reality that your impulse towards sinners like us is to not move away from us in our mess, but to move towards us in Christ. Father, we thank you that in Christ you're for us. Our circumstances are not the primary evidence of your love for us, but Christ's death on the cross is the primary evidence of your love. So we thank you for that, Lord. Help us to live faithfully as a church, trusting in you. It's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen.